Well, it's good to see you this morning. I'm Jason, the pastor here at City Church. And if you have not been with us, uh, we have been working our way through one of the Apostle Paul's letters in the New Testament. It's the letter uh, to the Galatians. So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the Purex in front of you. And if you're not familiar with the Bible and how to find different books of the Bible, uh, that's okay. If you look at your worship guide, um, the page that our passage is found on is actually printed for you uh, if you're using one of the, the Pew Bibles. And we are looking at Galatians chapter 5 this morning, uh, the beginning of Galatians 5. And we are going to spend our time uh, in verses 1 through 15. So Galatians 5, 1 through 15. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter uh, to this young church, and there was a lot that was going on in this church. Uh, when Paul had first uh, visited this church and helped to get it started, he proclaimed and lived by the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And at the heart of the, the gospel is this uh, announcement of good news that we find favor with God, we come into right relationship with God not based on our performance, not based on how we live our lives, but, in our, but through our faith in what Jesus did for us. So faith in his performance on our behalf. So that's how this church got started. But what has happened uh, since that point, um, and Paul writing this letter, is that there is a group of false teachers that have made their way into the churches in Galatia, and they've begun to say this, that yes, Paul's message of faith in Jesus alone is really important, but you also have to adopt Jewish customs, such as circumcision and other Jewish rituals. In other words, you kind of have to become Jewish to really be in full relationship with God, to receive God's full welcome. Yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also have to do stuff. You also have to perform. And Paul's not having it. He's not having it. So he writes this letter to uh, call the Galatians out of danger. Uh, he, he sounds the warning, he sounds the alarm to call them back into genuine faith in Jesus alone for their acceptance and welcome with God. And so that brings us to the fifth chapter. And in this fifth chapter, uh, Paul is really going to hit home on what is the overall theme of this a letter that we've been hearing throughout. So let me read verses 1 through 15 for us. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven le leavens the whole lump. 
I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you, you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers and sisters, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you who were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to be present with us as uh, God promises and to teach us from the gospel this morning. Holy Spirit, we are so thankful this morning that you are present with us, that it's not up to you, it's not up to us to get something out of this passage this morning. And so we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would transform us wherever we find ourselves this morning. We recognize that we are a diverse bunch this morning. Uh, some of us have come in believing the gospel, others of us disbelieving, and still others not sure of what we believe. And on top of that, Holy Spirit, some of us are hurting, some of us are joyous, uh, some of us are uh, despondent and depressed, while others of us uh, feel that we are close to you. If it is up to me uh, to somehow apply the gospel to all of these people and their hearts this morning, it's just not going to happen. And so I personally, Holy Spirit, am thankful for your presence and ask that you would speak through me and that you would bring your word, the good news of the gospel, to bear on all of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We are officially now into hurricane season. And if you have been following the news, following the weather forecast, then you know um, that we are indeed now into hurricane season because there is a very large hurricane, Dorian, um, out in the Caribbean currently. It's going to be, might be hitting the Bahamas um, right now, I'm not exactly sure. Um, and then it's going to be headed uh, to um, the U.S. Uh, eastern coast. Now, if you've uh, been following hurricanes and weather over the last few years, you've been introduced to this, this term, this phrase, the cone of uncertainty. You, you know, have you heard that? If you haven't, then just don't worry about it. But the cone of uncertainty represents um, what uh, meteorologists believe is the possible area that the hurricane can hit. And right now, the cone of uncertainty is basically the entire east coast of our country. Um, so it's going to hit somewhere uh, on the coast, but actually it might not hit anywhere on the coast, but it could, because it, it could veer off uh, into the ocean. So that's your weather forecast for me this morning. Uh, it's probably not going to be relevant to us here in Delaware. But something that comes along with this time of year, hurricane season, is all of the warnings that we hear, Right? All of the alarms that are being sounded, um, we, we have what are called hurricane warnings when a hurricane is about to hit a particular area and meteorologists uh, call out, they sound the alarm and say, we want you to be warned. You should evacuate because this is going to be bad and things could get dangerous. 
Well, the reason that I'm talking about hurricanes and hurricane warnings as we come to our passage this morning is because the Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, has issued an urgent, focused warning. He has sounded the alarm. And we don't just hear the alarm being sounded in this passage. Uh, He's been doing this from the very beginning of the letter. He wants our attention. He wanted the attention of these Galatian Christians. The central message of Galatians is summarized for us in the first verse of chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Christ has set us free. That is the main idea. That is the central message of Galatians. And it's an announcement of incredible life-altering good news. But it also comes with warnings in this letter from the Apostle Paul. And it comes with warnings against two different errors, two different errors that we're going to touch on in this passage that are both related to our spiritual freedom. And here are those warnings that we hear from the Apostle Paul in these verses. Don't lose your freedom and don't misuse your freedom. Don't lose your freedom, don't misuse your freedom. Let's first talk about the warning of don't lose your freedom. So as we already saw, um, the, the message of Galatians is presented to us in the very first words of this chapter. For freedom, Christ has sent us, set us free. Now, if you look down further, if you jump ahead to verse 13, the apostle also says, for you were called to freedom. So he's been doing this throughout the entire letter, but especially as he arrives at chapter 5, he's drawing our attention to the theme of freedom. He emphasizes how central freedom is to the Christian faith. Jesus came to make us free. That's basically what the apostle is saying. Jesus came to make us free. We could say it like this. The goal of the Christian life is freedom. The goal of the Christian life is freedom. This might surprise you, uh, depending on your current understanding of Christianity. Uh, It might surprise you, uh, depending on your past experience with Christianity. Uh, You know, this wouldn't be the first time this has happened at City Church, but it's quite possible that you are here this morning, and it's the first time that you have been in a church service in months or even years. And as you hear me say, based on this passage of Scripture, that the goal of the Christian life is freedom, your initial response to that might be something like, I I just don't see it. I just don't experience it. And and I want to say to you that I I, I get that. Uh, I I understand from your story, possibly, why you would feel like that in the moment. But I want you to see what the Word of God says to us this morning. I want you to see what the Bible says is actually true of the Christian faith, of the Christian gospel, the good news of Jesus. The goal of the Christian life is freedom. Paul couldn't make it any more clear. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He has set us free. That refers to a single uh, past action that is completed. It's definitive. It's done. Christ secured our freedom. He 
accomplished it. How are we to respond to this? Um, Because this is going to kind of be a a theme that we're going to come back to. um, Because sometimes we could reach the false conclusion that uh, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are free to live however we choose, however we want. And we're going to see that that's not the case in this passage. But how are we to respond to this free gift, we could say, this free grace? The, the word grace refers to God's undeserved favor. It's coming back to the idea that our welcome with God is not based on what we have done or haven't done. It's based on our faith in Jesus. And that's the answer. How do we respond? Verse 6, uh, Paul points it out for us, faith. We respond in faith. He's shown us this throughout the letter, hasn't he? he he's been stressing faith, faith, trust, belief in Jesus all along. We trust in Christ's work on our behalf. We accept the fact that we can't make ourselves free. We accept the fact that Jesus had to do it for us. And we've said already in this series that that is humbling. It's humbling. We don't like to hear that. We don't like to admit that, that we can't do something, right? Um, That is one of our greatest allergies in life, to have to admit that we fall short, that we are weak, that we can't accomplish something in our own power and strength. But the Christian gospel, the first response that we must have to it is that admission that I can't free myself, that as I look at my life and all of my attempts to uh, find greater and deeper freedom in life, in so many ways, it's actually just simply led me into deeper forms of enslavement. And the reason that Paul is so worked up in this letter is because of this issue of freedom or slavery. Because for Paul, what he wants the Galatians to understand is that if you walk away from Jesus... Or if you minimize the work of Jesus and add to it what you must do, you are sending yourself down a path of slavery. You might not realize it in the moment, but you will eventually get down that path and find that you are deeply enslaved. The Christian life is not enslaving, it's freeing. And this ultimately is why Paul is so worked up in this letter. He wants people on behalf of Jesus to be free. Now, again, this might come as a surprise to us because we're so accustomed to thinking about Christianity often in terms of rules and and requirements and what we must do. And there's a place for all of that. We're going to talk a little bit about that even uh, toward the end of this sermon. But we're so accustomed to thinking about Christianity in those terms, that we don't tend to think about the fact that the goal of the Christian life is freedom. That the reason that Paul here in this letter has such harsh and hard things to say toward these false teachers is because it's a matter of freedom or slavery. And so first comes Paul's warning, his first warning, the the second part of verse one, stand firm. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, don't lose 
your freedom. Don't become burdened by a yoke. What does Paul mean by this? Well, it was common in Judaism to talk about taking on the study and practice of the Mosaic law from the Old Testament. And it would be talked about in the terms of coming under the yoke. And Jesus and the early church viewed this, um, particularly if you're familiar with the Pharisees um, in the Gospels uh, of the New Testament, um, Jesus would um, had harsh things and hard things to say to them all the time because this is indeed what the Pharisees were all about. It's what they were doing. They were adding more and more rules and laws and regulations and saying, you must do these, you must follow these, you must perform to really be in with God. And Jesus and the early church saw this as a form of enslaving people spiritually with this heavy yoke that cannot be carried. And the Galatians, from Paul's perspective, are in danger of coming under this yoke again. How about that word again? We, we touched on this briefly last week. How is it that Paul could use this word? And the reason I ask that question is because these Galatians were Gentiles, non-Jewish people. So they were never guilty in their past of trying to live up to the Old Testament law, the Jewish law, to gain favor with God. So how, how could he say again, well, we, the way that we talked about this last week, um, we put it in these terms, that um, to our surprise, a religious person can be very similar to a non-religious person. And here's what I mean. But by, by talking about a religious person, I'm talking about sometimes how we view religion, but a religious person, for our, our definition, the way we're talking about it, is somebody who, um, they, they say that Jesus is important kind of like these false teachers, that Jesus is important. He's definitely part of the equation. And whether they articulate this honestly and openly or not, um, what they do by their lifestyle or what they say and call others too is, but you also have to do all of these things to really be in with God, to have his favor, to have his welcome and his love. You have to uh, you have to go to church. You have to read your Bible. You have to do these religious activities. And don't hear what I'm not saying. All of those things are incredibly important to growing in our freedom in the faith. But those things um, are not the standards that we use to try to live up to them and do them and perform them to get God's love. So that's the approach lifestyle of a religious person. Now, a non-religious person, they, they might say, God, Jesus, Bible, prayer, none of that's important. But we all have a standard that we live by, whatever that standard might be. We are all, according to the Bible, and I would say uh, according to our experience, we all are trying to achieve freedom, aren't we? We're trying to attain greater freedom. We want to be um, disentangled from uh, everything that would hold us back, everything that would hold us down. And so we're in pursuit of whatever it is that might make us more free. And we have a standard that we try to live by. Now, the, the word that comes into play here is a word that Paul has used throughout the letter, justified. Just, to be justified is to be declared right, to be declared good, that you're okay, you're in. And Paul's argument throughout this letter is that every one of us, whether we consider ourselves to be religious or non-religious or somewhere in between, we all have a longing to be justified. 
We recognize, if we're honest, that we are on the outside of something we want to be on the inside of. We, we want that greater, deeper freedom. We're in pursuit of it. And so we use standards, whatever they might be, to try to justify ourselves, to declare ourselves to be right, to make ourselves feel valuable and worthy, and for others, hopefully, to also say, yes, you are worthy, you are valuable, because you live up to the standard. And so that's why Paul here can say of the Galatians, you're in danger of going under the yoke again. It doesn't necessarily mean that they used to live under the Jewish law, but they lived under a law, under a standard, and they tried um, to make their uh, achievement of freedom based on what they do. And so Paul says to them, do not go back under this yoke. Do not lose your freedom. Stand firm. This expression that Paul uses is a military word. Uh, It it combines the idea of being alert, um, being strong, and resisting attack. Ultimately, what Paul is saying is that we must be diligent to preserve our freedom. We have to recognize that we have a tendency to slip back into the pursuit of self-justification. We have a tendency... Uh, Even for those of us who have been in the church for a long time, who know the gospel of grace, um, we could uh, articulate it very clearly to somebody, but we have a danger of slipping back into, and you know this from, you're going to do it tomorrow. You're going to do it tomorrow. I'm going to do it tomorrow. It's such a tendency where we slip back into at least thinking and acting like, oh, I must do this, I must do that, I must perform uh, for God to really love me, for me to really... Um, arrive at this spiritual freedom that I'm after. It's such a tendency that we have to be aware of. We have to be diligent to preserve our spiritual freedom. In verses 2 through 4, it seems to be the case that the Galatians thought that requiring circumcision or adopting uh, different parts of Jewish customs and law wasn't that big of a deal, that it really didn't make that much of a difference. You know, we still believe in Jesus. We're just going to say now that we have to start doing these things too to really uh, be welcomed. But Paul wanted them to understand, and you see him uh, unpack this in verses 2 through 4. And this isn't new. Uh, This is one of the things that makes especially Galatians hard is because hard to preach and teach because Paul just keeps coming back to the same theme, same message over and over again. Um, but we need to hear it, don't we? We need to hear it. And so he wants them to understand that if they require obedience to one aspect, to one part of the law, they are obligated to try to obey all of the law. It's not just, let's just take this one aspect of it and say, okay, this is critical for the formula of being accepted with God. Paul's saying that's not how it works. It's not how it works. You have to come under the entirety of the law, and you have to try to live up to it in every way, and it's not possible. You can't do it. And so Paul says that if you um, take this approach, if this is what you do, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Somebody has said that um, addition to Christ um, equals subtraction of Christ. If we add to um, the requirement of 
uh, how we come into relationship with God, if we add to just simply faith in what Jesus has done, we ultimately are removing Jesus from the equation altogether. This is Paul's argument. And it's the problem with self-justification. Paul knows that if they try just this one part of the law, it's not a big deal, um, let's just be accepted by these false teachers, we'll just do this one thing, Paul knows that it is the beginning of spiritual slavery. You can't have it both ways. You can't cling to Jesus plus the law for your uh, favor with God. Let it go. And so for us, we would say, let go of your need to perform, to make yourself acceptable to God. Let go of it. Cling to Christ. Salvation is either by faith alone, by grace alone, or it's not. That's that's the argument. And Paul has harsh words. He basically says that those who trust in their own efforts are severed from Christ. It's really another way of saying the same thing. He's saying that if you try to trust in your own effort to whatever degree for your favor with God, you are ultimately severed with Christ, severed from Christ, because he's removed from the equation altogether. You're spiritually lost. And if this is the case, if you find yourself moving in down a path of spiritual slavery, you have to ask yourself the question, did I ever understand the gospel of grace in the first place? Verses 7 through 12. What I really appreciate from Paul in this letter is that even though he has hard things to say, we really see his heart. He's saying hard things out of love. He's grieving what is happening. And he flips to an analogy of running track, beginning with verse 7. He says, you were running well. Things were, you, you got off to a really good start. But who jumped onto the track and got in your way and slowed you down. Now, Paul knows who it is. He's just using, he's coming at it for the sake of uh, his argument. And then he, he talks about this group that is, they're doing this in the form of trying to persuade um, the Galatians uh, in a way that is contrary to what Paul taught them. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Um, Basically, this idea of leaven, um, to be short here, was really a picture of compromise. Um, There's no, you can't compromise in the gospel. It's that same logic, that same argument again, that if you add to Christ, it's not really a compromise. It's something altogether different. It's no longer the gospel. It's no longer what the church was founded on. Um, in terms of what Jesus proclaimed and now what Paul is proclaiming. And then we get these strange words from Paul. It's hard to know exactly where he's coming from. But he says, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? It's possible that what's going on here is that these false teachers were telling, Paul, were telling the Galatians, well, Paul meant to still tell you you also had to be circumcised and adopt Jewish customs. He just kind of maybe forgot to. He wanted to emphasize how important Jesus is now, that he just kind of left out that other stuff, and we're now um, coming, we're now following him to fill in 
the complete message. And Paul says, if that's the case, if I'm, I'm still proclaiming circumcision, still telling you need to adopt the Jewish law, then why am I being persecuted by Jewish people? So he's saying that that, that, that can't be the case. Open your eyes, basically. And then verse 12. When I read this, I looked up and saw many of your uh, visible reactions to this. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, that's one way of putting it, isn't it? We said that Paul is not holding back throughout this letter. It's vivid language that he's using here. Galatians, if you're keen on cutting off foreskin, a slice of the male body, just go all the way. Go all the way and just castrate yourselves. I wish those who trouble you would cut themselves off. Strong language, isn't it? Strong wording here from Paul. Now, we asked this question, I think, in the very first sermon in this series. Is Paul worked up for nothing? Is he worked up for nothing? I would argue that that's not the case. Paul is saying what he says in this letter from a heart of love. The goal of the Christian life is freedom. That's where Paul's coming from. The goal of the Christian life is freedom. And Galatians, I'm going to do whatever it takes. As your pastor, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure that you do not go down the path of spiritual slavery under my oversight. Come back to the gospel of grace. Come back to Jesus alone. Do not try to add to it. Do not try to be good enough. Do not try to perform to get God to love you more because it will never end. Where does it stop? Cling to Jesus. Remember, Christ has set us free. It's definitive. It's done. It's in the past. We don't have to do any more to gain God's favor and love. So the first warning is don't lose your freedom. Second warning, don't misuse your freedom. Now, this is important. Um, And I, I think to really begin to talk about this, we need to talk about different definitions of freedom. When our culture uses the word freedom, and maybe even sometimes when we use the word freedom, what we're referring to is our ability to choose to live however we want, right? Uh, I mean, I, that, I find myself guilty of that, of thinking in that way, that um, freedom is me just being free from, you know, everything and everyone else. It's living for myself, doing what I want, seeking fulfillment and happiness uh, based on my own terms. That is not the definition of freedom that the Bible uses or is coming from. The Bible's definition of freedom is the ability to bring our lives into alignment with what God made us for. It's the ability to bring our lives into alignment with what God made us for. So the goal is for our deepest desires to conform to the realities of how things are meant to be. Now, we have to address something that has come up um, probably in every sermon, 
And we have to make a distinction in the law because Paul throughout this letter is not saying that you are no longer obligated to follow the moral law. He specifically is referring to um, what we would call the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. But he also would say, and, and here's the huge distinction to make, that we are still obligated to live under the moral law, but not as a way of trying to find favor with God. You see the difference? The moral law is still important. The moral law, as we've said, is beautiful. The moral law represents how God made things to be. It represents shalom, flourishing, his good intentions for life. And so as we learn to bring our lives into alignment with all of that, we flourish. We find freedom. So it's actually the opposite of slavery. And here's what it comes down to. We get deceived because we are so fixated on self, aren't we? We're so fixated and focused on self. We think that freedom uh, equals us defining the terms, but I'll just speak for myself. Even though I fall into that trap so many times, the reality of life is that if uh, I get to define what is good for myself, if I get to define freedom, I'm I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. Because if that's the case, I'm going to manipulate people, I'm going to use people, I'm going to do whatever it takes to find happiness and fulfillment on my own terms. I'm not going to take into account you, am I? Now, this happens subtly, oftentimes, in our lives. First, the, the first part of verse 13. Again, Paul stresses, for you were called to freedom, highlighting the importance of freedom here. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. There it is. There it is. So don't lose your freedom, but also don't misuse your freedom. There is a way in which we can misuse freedom. And what does that look like? It's when we turn inward, fixate on ourselves, and decide that we can live however we choose. That's not true freedom. And so Paul's saying, do not use your freedom as an opportunity to live for yourself because that's actually not freedom in the end anyway. So we aren't free. As we um, believe the gospel, as we trust in Jesus, and we we find our favor and our welcome with God based on the fact that Jesus has performed uh, for us, that frees us. It liberates us. But it doesn't mean that we're left in a place where, well, now that I have God's grace, I have his forgiveness, I have his love, I can do whatever I want because his grace, love, and forgiveness are always going to be there. Yes, they'll always be there, but if that's the approach we're taking to life, then we never understood the gospel in the first place because the gospel transforms us. It changes our desires. It changes our motivations so that we love what God loves. We want to bring ourselves into alignment with what is good, defined by God, because he knows best as the author of life. And so what is the proper use of our freedom? The second part of verse 13, through love, serve one another. Well, that just took a turn. At least it did for me as I was wrestling with this passage all week. How did we all of a sudden get into love and service of others? I thought we were talking about me and God. I thought we were talking about my relationship with God and how I find favor with him 
um, not based on my effort, but on faith in Jesus alone. And now all of a sudden, Paul has introduced others into the picture. Through love, serve one another. Here's the deal. What is your spiritual freedom for? Why did Jesus free you? Answer, so that you might be free to love and serve others. You didn't see that coming, did you? Jesus frees us so that we might be free to love and serve others. This is so hard. So hard because we fall into the trap of being fixated on ourselves, caring about our desires, our rights, and not those around us. Now, I want to take you back. I I specifically, maybe you noticed, maybe you didn't. I skipped verse 5, and I did it on purpose. I want to come back to it now. Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. What does Paul mean by this verse? He's not saying that, all right, out there, at the end of our life, the end of history, um, we await for God's acceptance and his ultimate welcome. And so um, life in the present is basically a stage that we get onto, and we try to perform really hard. We try to be good enough um, so that at the end, we will have that welcome and acceptance of God. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, what he's saying is that because your faith is in Jesus, your uh, final destination, your eternal um, safety is secure. Live in light of that. You don't have to perform to get God to love you, knowing that at the end, you have God's love, his welcome, his arms waiting for you open wide. Love and serve others. You don't have to be so fixated on yourself, your comfort, your preferences. You are free to think about others because Jesus served you. And so Paul points us to the future, the confidence that we can have, that our acceptance and welcome is secure because of Jesus. And he wants to enlarge our imaginations here. He wants us to think about, wow, if that's really true, If I don't have to to use my life as a way to try to perform, to get people or or God to accept me, if my acceptance with God is already secure because of Jesus, wow, that changes everything. And here's the connection. We're free to love and serve others because we don't have to use and manipulate others any longer. We no longer have to to use others. And whatever the the standard might be, race, culture, uh, socioeconomic status, um, job, uh, whatever it might be, we don't have to compare ourselves to other people in that way anymore and use them as a way to try to make ourselves feel more valuable and worthy, to try to puff ourselves up. Do Do you see this connection between spiritual freedom and spiritual slavery? Spiritual freedom fuels you to love and serve others. Spiritual slavery, trying to find favor with God or meet the standard, whatever it is, through human effort, um, it, it prevents you from really authentically loving other people because you're going to use people in, in, in your journey of trying to make yourself acceptable in the end. And then so later on, Paul adds to this. 
He says uh, in verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law, all that Paul's been talking about in this letter, it's fulfilled in that simple statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. The irony is, is that if you are using the law as a means to find favor with God, you can't ultimately fulfill the law. But if you are confident in your acceptance with God based on faith in Jesus, and you see that you no longer have to use the law as a way of trying to gain favor with God, you then are in a position to actually grow in love and service of others. Uh, yesterday, I believe it was yesterday, um, Naomi Osaka defeated Coco Guff in the third round of the U.S. Open. Did any of you see this? Even if you didn't see the match, did you hear about what happened uh, afterward? Maybe one person. Uh, so it, it, this will be new for you. Um, and then you can go home and, and Google it. But yeah, Naomi Osaka defeated um, Coco Goff yesterday uh, in the third round of the U.S. Open. But what happened after the match was probably, definitely, definitely more important than what actually happened during the match on the court. So immediately after uh, Osaka defeated Goff, she uh, goes up to her, um, and they're both very emotional. And she invites Goff to be a part of her post-match interview, which never happens, right? Because the, the, post, the post-match interview isn't for the loser, it's for the winner. But Osaka goes to Goff and invites her and says, will you come and be a part of the interview with me? And um, initially, Goff is like, I'm paraphrasing, but you won the match. This is your moment. I don't want to take from it. And, but Osaka convinces her to come and do the interview with her. And this interview is amazing. Incredibly, both young women are incredibly emotional. And the whole interview, they are just praising the other. They're just seeking to to enhance the other, to draw attention to the other, to build the other up. It was so beautiful. And in this article that I I read about it, um, I I find it striking because I I think this is important for us as the church, um, what this uh, writer uh, on ESPN's website said. Osaka, who had just won the match in convincing fashion, then insisted Goff to be a part of her post-match on-court interview typically reserved for only the winning player. The two bright young stars were both overcome with emotion as they talked to ESPN's Mary Jo Fernandez. And here it is. The crowd was captivated, seemingly frozen in their seats by what they were seeing. The crowd was captivated, seemingly frozen in their seats by what they were seeing. This writer is not talking about what happened on the court during the match. The author is talking about the way that these two women interacted in public in front of the crowd and in front of the whole world. The crowd, uh, I don't know if it was a man or woman who wrote the article, the crowd was captivated and seemingly frozen in their seats by what they were seeing. This is the, the power of love. The power of love. You know, Paul talks about this um, in different places, uh, like in in Ephesians, he talks about serving 
one another, being willing to lay down our lives, to um, count other people's interests above our own. This is what we're talking about. This is what uh, captures the essence of love. And here it is, brothers and sisters. We're called to not lose our spiritual freedom. We are called to embrace the gospel wholeheartedly. The good news, praise God, that our acceptance, our favor, our welcome with God is based on faith in Jesus and how he performed for us and not our uh, having to perform uh, to try to gain it. And because of that, we are freed and loved to serve others, to treat them as image bearers, to not have to manipulate and use them. We're free to love and serve them. And guess what? This is what our culture so desperately needs to see. Our culture desperately needs to see people who are able to love others, who are able to count others' interests as more important than their own. And if the church is not the community of people who displays this to the world, then who will? Who will? Let's pray. Father, blow our minds with the beauty of the gospel. Make us astonished. Make us overcome with joy. As we truly grasp how good of news it is that we have your love and your welcome, and it's not dependent on what we have to do or what we haven't done. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray that because of the gospel, because of Jesus, you would shape us into a church that loves one another and loves others. And may our love displayed to the world point to the reality and truth and beauty of the gospel. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.